Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Europe where I want to give you a little bit of an update about what Back to Jerusalem is doing for this disaster that is taking place in the Ukraine right now with the Russian invasion. This is something that is not in the 1040 window. So I want to explain why BDJ is involved in something that really isn't in in the middle of the 1040 window. I mean, when you look at Back to Jerusalem projects, everything that we do focuses on completing the Great Commission, everything. So our main focus has always been between China and Jerusalem. So most of the time when you see Back to Jerusalem doing humanitarian aid efforts, it is in the area between China and Jerusalem, either Asia, Middle East, or Africa, areas where the good news of Jesus Christ has yet to go. And so everything that we do, including humanitarian projects, partners together with that vision, that focus. So why the Ukraine? The Ukraine is not in the middle of the area between China and Jerusalem. It's actually west of Jerusalem on the European continent. So why are we involved? The answer to that is pretty easy. One of the reasons why we are involved is because we have an office in Poland right on the border of this disaster and our office is involved, our our partners are involved, and we simply want to be there to help them. This will not be something that we'll be doing for the entire year. I'm thinking that is my thoughts at the moment when I look at the the tragedy that is taking place in the Ukraine. But our office is right there. Uh, Tim, who I did a podcast with before, you can actually go back and listen to that podcast. He is together with a network of uh, house churches in Poland. Uh, there are a lot of believers that are coming out of Catholicism and they have uh, these fellowships that meet together in homes. And now they have a network of these homes throughout the nation of Poland where they are able to encourage one another and pray as well as support the Back to Jerusalem vision of the Chinese underground house church. About every month, if not every month, it's very close to that, Uh, we see remarkable support coming from this house church inside of Poland to the areas where the Chinese underground house church is focused on uh, serving and completing the Great Commission. Now, that house church network in Poland that Back to Jerusalem is partnered together with is helping as a direct response to this tragedy that is taking place in the Ukraine. And we've been asking people around the world to pray for the Ukraine. And that's how we started to do our fundraiser for um, the Ukraine refugee crisis. I was doing a podcast together with him. And at the end of that podcast, I had heard him talking about the ways that they were going to be serving and helping and supporting during this tragedy. And I said, we would like to partner together with the underground church in Poland to support the efforts 
that Back to Jerusalem office in Poland is involved in. When Tim is involved, that involves us directly because he is a dear friend and we stand together with him. We stand shoulder to shoulder with him in this effort to help those in need. And we've been asking people around the world to pray for the situation in the Ukraine. And there have been Christians that have been posting on social media. If you've been watching on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, there's a lot of prayer requests that are being circulated around with the, with the Ukrainian flag where people have been praying for the people of the Ukraine. And there might be evidence that that prayer is being answered. I don't know how people assume that their prayers are going to be answered when they say that they're praying for the Ukraine. I think that we all kind of have in our minds the way that things are going to go, but sometimes there are, there are interesting ways in which God answers our prayers that may not be the way that we want to see them manifested, the way that we want to see our prayers answered. Right now, we're looking at the EU, and I have to say, from what I've been reading, at, at least in Western Europe, I'm in, I'm in Western Europe right now, what I have been reading in Western Europe, European news is a warm welcome in the EU for the Ukrainian refugees, and it has been heart-touching. The EU has seen thousands in the Ukraine or from the Ukraine that are coming to the EU. And the EU is increasing its financial assets for the refugees. In fact, I think that they just came out with a massive budget of like $1.2 billion in aid that is already available. And that, that's not the exact amount, but right now they're looking at that kind of amount. And so far, Ukraine's Western neighbors have pledged to take in refugees fleeing from Russia's attack. On Thursday, Ukrainians began showing up on the border by the thousands. And one of those border areas is Poland, where Back to Jerusalem has an office. And Poland is the largest country on the Ukrainian border's western front. And so there are a lot of refugees that are pouring over. They're coming by car. They're coming by foot. They're coming by railway. And Poland, being the largest country on Ukrainian's western flank, is the primary destination for many refugees, and that's why we want to support Tim. Pray for him and the, the efforts that he is working on, as well as praying for the resources to be there as they supply the resources needed. I just got a, a message from him today saying that their plan, so they're, they're playing it by ear, they're trying to focus on families, and they're, play, they're providing basic humanitarian aid, food, blankets, that kind of thing. At least in the beginning, that is their main focus. One of the things that we're going to be hearing about, and this is important, if you forget everything about this podcast, please listen to this point. Starting today, you're going to hear a lot. It's going to increase. I've already started to hear it. Where there's going to be a direct comparison given between the way the refugees were, were treated in 2015 and the way that the refugees from the Ukraine are going to be treated in 2022. Vox, an article that I just read this morning, pointed out very poignantly that um, the... Uh, actually, just let me... I'm going to read it directly. 
instead of paraphrasing, I'm going to read directly what Vox wrote because I think it gets to the heart of the problem. And then I want to look at what politicians are already saying about the difference between the refugee crisis in 2015 and the refugee crisis that we're seeing in Europe in 2022. Now, if you remember from 2015, I was very much involved in that refugee crisis as well because we were working directly in Syria and Iraq. We were a part of that Middle Eastern um, uh, response. And there were refugees coming over by the tens of thousands and they were fleeing to Europe. Vox wrote this, This kind of mobilization across Europe to come to the Ukrainians' aid stands in contrast to past response to migrant crisis. Just months ago, Poland decided to utilize troops and construct $400 million of wall to repel predominantly Muslim asylum seekers at its border with Belarus. Over the past years, Hungary has passed laws criminalizing support for asylum seekers and limiting the right to asylum and has allowed police to automatically expel any unauthorized migrants. And in 2015, the influx of Syrians fueled the rise of populist, anti-immigration, Eurosceptic, and far-right parties across Europe. This is a false equivalency, and it is a trap. This is important for Back to Jerusalem supporters to know the difference. What is happening here? What is the difference? Well, according to um, a, a woman by the name of Krish O'Mara, she was the policy director under the former First Lady Michelle Obama, and she is now the CEO of the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. According to her, she knows the difference. What is the difference? There is more willingness. This is a direct quote. There is more willingness to accept Ukrainians because they are white, European, and majority Christian, revealing the troubling rise of nationalist movements rooted in the fear of the other. End quote. Sounds logical. I mean, we've seen, we're, it seems like we are seeing a reception of one group of refugees with open arms and a reception of the other group of refugees without open arms. What is the difference? Oh, they look different. They have different religions. And when you make that equivalency, the common relaxed observer of the news will be able to easily link those two together. But it is not the case. This is false, and Christians need to know the difference. Well, then what is the difference? Am I just going to make up an excuse for the open arm reception of one and the rejection of the other? No. I want to look at the facts, and the facts is when refugees first started pouring in from Syria and Iraq, there were welcoming committees that were at the airport cheering, celebrating. We worked back to Jerusalem, worked at safe houses where the entire group of everybody that came into the safe house was taken in by Germany, not taken in by Saudi Arabia, not taken in by, by Bahrain, very wealthy countries, not taken in by Qatar, countries that have money oozing out of their pores, not taken in by Turkey, who wanted to be a part of the EU. They were taken in by Germany. 
Right now, I'm doing this podcast from Sweden. They took in, across the board, massive numbers of refugees, much higher than anybody else, when you look at the percentage of population. Sweden took in a buttload of refugees in percentage to their population. But the welcoming committees began to fade out, and that's what we remember. We don't remember the welcoming committees that were there at the beginning. We remember the, the boundaries that were put up. Why were there boundaries that were put up? Because they were Muslim? No. There was a, a challenge with doing the absorption, but that wasn't the big problem. The big problem was something that we don't see in the beginning days of the Ukraine. But we did see in the beginning days of ISIS invasion of Syria and Iraq. What is that? This is big. This is the big point that you need to see. This is something that I reported directly on because I saw it with my own eyes. I was there. We saw young men that were of fighting age that did not want to protect their own homes, pack up bags and make their trail to Europe leaving women and children behind. I worked with those women and children. And I cannot tell you family after family after family after family that I worked with where their son, their husband, their uncle, the provider, the brother was gone, left to Europe in a refugee camp in Turkey or Germany. There were, there were so many young fighting men that came into Europe and began to lie about their age just to get in. And there was, a, there was a certain amount of sympathy for those refugees that were coming in. In fact, Sweden had to implement a certain way to be able to tell a person's age outside of what they were being told by the refugees that were coming in. There were individuals that were coming in that were clearly not teenage boys that were claiming that they were 14 and they were not. Now, I know that there is a difference with, you know, with the ability of like growing facial hair and those kind of things, but the, the, the Swedes were doing other biometrical measurements in order to be able to determine ages because there was this long line of individuals that were lying about their age, saying that they were below the age of 18 so that they would be accepted as a minor when they were not large groups of single males coming over by themselves without their families into Western Europe. In the Ukraine, you have the opposite, at least right now. Right now, the number one difference for the refugees is that men fled and left the women and children behind in Syria and Iraq, where now we are seeing that the, the women and children are fleeing from the Ukraine and the men are staying and fighting in Ukraine. In fact, we're seeing that there are famous Ukrainians who are going back and fighting for their country. There are two very well, very well known famous world champion boxers from in the UK, from the Ukraine that left their lives in the UK to go and fight for their country in the Ukraine. We see that there is a huge difference because the Ukrainians are putting up a fight. The only people that really put up a fight in Iraq that we work together with were the Kurds. 
the Kurds put up a fight. They stayed and fought. But many of the other individuals that are living in the areas that were attacked by ISIS fled. You know, many of the soldiers were fleeing from Iraq and Syria before ISIS even got there. The, the, the news of them coming was enough to scare top generals, military leaders. In fact, entire Iraqi units took off their uniforms and walked away from towns and left towns to be exposed to ISIS overnight. ISIS was able to come in in Toyota trucks and, and halfway mounted machine guns on top that rattled when they drove across the desert. They, they, they came in with, with some duct tape and bootleg strategies to be able to take over these towns and they did it through fear alone. ISIS moved in, they were a group of thugs, and they were able to take over entire swaths of, the, of Syria and Iraq. We have a world power moving into the Ukraine. And right now we are seeing something that I don't think anybody thought they would see. And that is Ukraine is fighting back, they are digging in, they're not giving up, and the Russians have a fight on their hands. I mean, this is a big difference. Unlike the Iraqis in Syria and Iraq, where they had the advantage of setting up a perimeter, digging in and fighting back, the Ukrainians or the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are outmanned, outgunned. They're fighting the one of you know what used to be a superpower anyway, fighting a superpower. And they are not going to give up their homeland easily. The U.S. government has announced that they are prepared to help the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, leave Kiev. Because they know right now there's a, there's a, there's a search and destroy party after him. Like the, the Russians are looking for him. They are looking to capture and kill him. They have these advancing Russian forces that are out searching for him, using all of their intel in order to identify his location. But so far, the president has refused to go. He's on the front lines and he's fighting. I have to say, for as an observer, I'm encouraged and I, and I, and I have to ask, is this an answer to prayer? I want to be very careful here because we are not a news agency in the way that we just report the news. One of the things that we do at Back to Jerusalem is I give commentary on how world events impact missions. And when I did the podcast yesterday, I talked specifically about how this is going to impact missions directly. One of the things I was talking about was flight plans are going to be drastically impacted because of Russia shutting off their airspace to European flights. That's going to directly impact European flights going into Asia. That's going to directly impact Chinese flights. There, we have a, we have a great friend and listener. Uh, her name's Tanya from Finland. And as soon as we did the podcast, right after we did the podcast, there was an article that was put up about Finnair already seeing that their flights are 
possibly going to be banned by Russia, and that will impact all of their China flights. So many people, when they fly from Europe to China, they've been taking Finnair. Finnair has been one of those airlines that have been on top of things when finding designations that are profitable for the future. They really did have farsight on their strategy for world travelers, and they became the number one carrier in Europe for Chinese travel, flying directly to Beijing and Zhengzhou and Shanghai and Hong Kong. So I've been on those flights many times on thin air and they have really had the foresight and they just put out an announcement yesterday about they're already trying to make plans about what happens when they can no longer fly over uh, Russian airspace because basically all of the flights going from Europe into China are going to go over Russian airspace, not only from Europe, but also from America. This changes the strategy for missionaries. This becomes a direct impact on missionaries, which is why we report this. When we look at Finland and they're already doing the reporting, one of the things that Finland has that most of the world does not have is experience at fighting with Russia. Let me introduce you to a, to a, a, a Finnish word. I want to introduce you to a Finnish word. My wife, uh, her parents were born in Finland. Her family comes from Finland. They immigrated to Sweden because of the invasion of Russia. In fact, my wife's grandmother is from an area called Karelia. Karelia is a, is a very unique area in the world. And her grandmother was a fascinating person. And today, Karelia is, is run by Russia. And so I heard stories, I sat down with her grandmother and I, and I actually interviewed her in some ways talking about when the Russians invaded Finland during her life. And so she gave me a little bit of insight of what the Ukrainians are facing right now. She said that she remembers that when the, when the Russians came, the parents put the children on trains and then the trains would take these, these war children to other cities in Finland while the, the husbands and the wives stayed and fought for their country, stayed and fought for their homes. And so they sent the children by themselves. And so the children were received. And so her grandmother remembers being in a home of another Finnish uh, house. And she was the, the, the home really didn't want to take her. So they kept her down in the basement all day, every day. And she was only allowed to come up to eat uh, two or three times a day. And when she ate, she had to eat standing up so as to ensure that she wouldn't spend too much time eating. So even in Finland, the, the refugee children weren't really accepted because many of the people were, were fighting to provide for their own. And it wasn't until months later that she was reunited in her, it, it, with her family, not knowing that she had other members of her family just a few houses down, but because the people didn't really communicate about who was where and in whose home and how the refugees were distributed, they didn't even know, uh, my wife's uh, grandmother didn't know that she was only a very short distance from her other family members. And in one case, um, she talks about the um, Russians coming into one of their one of the the areas where they had been living on a on a farm in Finland, and they, the 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 Finnish military was able to push back the 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 Russians. And when the family went back to their home, they found a wounded soldier on the on on the bed in the home. And so she told me what they did with that soldier, which just blew my mind. 
uh, they they basically she didn't see it because she was a little girl, but she says she thinks that that soldier was killed and then taken in his body hidden. There is a in in Finland the Finns are very proud of their national day here in Sweden where I'm at right now. If you talk about the Swedish national day, it's kind of considered to be embarrassing. Like it's not anything that you're you're allowed to be proud of. But in Finland, people are very very proudly. Finish. Why? Because they had to fight for their independence, and they have a little something in their culture. It's not a really. It's not a word that you have in any other, or it's not in the English language that I know of. And it's a very special word that I was taught uh, very early on in in my marriage with my wife. The word is sisu. Sisu is this grit, this fighting spirit, this unwillingness to give up, this desire. To stand even when hardship hits and it's unbearable, you still stand because you have Cecil. We see this in the Finnish Winter War with Russia. This this was something that could be reminiscent of what we're seeing right now in the Ukraine. This could be an answer to prayer. It may not be the answer that I'm looking for. May not be the answer that you're looking for. War is ugly. It's deadly. We should never embrace it, celebrate it. But we should appreciate when God answers our prayers, even when he answers them in ways that we don't like. You see, in the 1930s, Germans had their eyes set on several nations that they wanted to take over. These were internal uh, desires that they had that they had put on paper, but they weren't sharing with the rest of the world. The rest of the world had a clue, but the rest of the world wanted to pretend that it wasn't really true that Germany was going to take over certain nations. One of the nations that they had their eye on was Poland. And so the Germans perfected something that even today we still talk about. It's called the Blitzkrieg. The Blitzkrieg was this term that was given to the German shock troops where the Germans would move in with overwhelming firepower. They would move lightning fast and they would move in on their objectives and and target their objectives and move in and take over in a matter of minutes, hours. It was lightning quick. During those days, the newspapers could not keep up with the progress of the German military in this blitzkrieg um, strategy. The whole world saw Germany moving in to different countries using blitzkrieg, and they were in awe. The whole world stopped. They were shocked. This freaked people out. Like if Germany can move into countries this fast, this swiftly, this powerfully, and take over so absolutely, they are a power to be reckoned with. Stalin saw this, and Stalin, he he admired it. He he longed for the world to fear him the way that they feared Hitler. They longed for the world to respect his military the way they respected the German military. So for his birthday, the Soviet generals got together and decided that for his 60th birthday, they were going to hand deliver him the signed surrender papers of Finland. So they invaded with the Blitzkrieg in mind. (laughs) And it didn't go the way they thought it was going to go. Because the Finns had Sisu. And my wife's family was involved in that. 
They sent the children away from the front lines to eventually become refugees, to go and eventually my wife's grandmother moved into Sweden where she found an economic relief and she was able to get away from the battles that were taking place at the time with Russia. But the men stayed and fought. They fought for their country. We have one of the most famous snipers in the world coming from Finland during this Finnish winter war. The Finns actually were the very first to employ this new type of warfare that had never really been seen before by fighting on skis. The Finns strapped on skis and what they would do is they would come out of the forest at night and go into the encampment of the Russians, which reminds me of like these biblical stories of like confusion that were caused like with Gideon's men. The, 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 the Finns would go right into the German camps and they would ski through the middle of them, shooting up the tents. And by the time the German, by the time the Russians would respond, they would jump out, jump out of their tents and the Finns were already gone on their skis. They slipped in on skis. They went out on skis. The Russians couldn't catch them on foot. The skis were too fast. The Russians couldn't catch them on vehicle because it took, you know, they had to jump in their vehicle. They had to get it started up. And then they had to go through snow that was too deep where the skis just went right over the top. For the 60th birthday of Stalin, instead of seeing the surrender papers from the Finns, it is said that he grew angry because pulling into Stalingrad day after day after day were trainloads of wounded and dead soldiers, many of them shot, wounded, or frostbit from the bitter winter of trying to fight in Finland. Didn't go the way they thought. And I'm reminded of that. I'm sharing that with you today because in so many ways, we're seeing this unfold today in the Ukraine. I think the entire world thought that the Ukraine was going to fall in a matter of minutes, kind of like what we saw in Crimea. When the Ukraine realized that the U.S. is not coming to our aid, when the Ukraine realized the EU is not coming to our aid, when the Ukraine realized that NATO is not coming to our aid, when the Ukraine realized that the U.N. is not coming to our aid, I mean, you know the U.N.? hosted a hearing on the invasion of Russia going into the Ukraine and the forum was hosted by Russia. Russia was the head of the meeting because of the rotation of the permanent security council. It just so happens that right now Russia is in charge of the security council hearings. So a security council hearing on Russia invading the Ukraine was chaired by Russia. <laughs> that is about as unfair as you get. It's, that's a joke. Come on. You can complain all you want. The president of Ukraine can complain to the UN all he wants, but the person chairing the meeting is on Russia's side. Ukraine quickly learns they're on their own. But the country that nobody thought very much of is being attacked and they are not yet defeated. In fact, the opposite is happening. They've been shooting down helicopters, taking out dozens of tanks and capturing Russian troops. They now have, they, they now have enemies of war that they have captured from Russia. 
And they have now one of the first air aces since World War II. He's known as the guest of Kiev. Supposedly, he's getting into dogfights with Russian pilots and winning. According to some accounts, he got into a dogfight with six Russian MiGs on day one and shot them all down. Is that true? I don't know. But the legend is bringing hope to people, which is important. You know, I like to watch certain war movies. I'm not a big war movie buff. Most people that know me know that I like girly movies. I like chick flicks. I watch them all the time. I would rather, most of the time, I'd rather choose a chick flick over a war movie. Um, but there is a war movie that is one of my favorite of all times. It's called Enemy at the Gates. It's a sniper movie. It's the best dang sniper movie ever made. I'm a big fan of it because the, the strategy, a lot of the things that they use in that movie is about as real to being a sniper as I've ever seen portrayed in a movie. And in the movie, ironically, there is uh, a German sniper that when he goes into a country, he calls, causes wide fear among the troops. Just his presence makes a lot of the Russians want to give up because they, they assume that this German sniper is all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-existing. He can be around every corner and shoot you from any angle, and you're going to be dead. And so it struck fear into the hearts of the Russians. And the Russians at the time, when they were fighting, they had so much fear that they were running away from battle. And the way that the Russians had to keep them from running from battle was to shoot them. So you had a group of young men that were at the front lines that were fighting with the Germans. And then you had a second line of Russian troops that would follow the first line. And anybody from the first line that tried to retreat, the second line's job was to shoot those that were retreating. And so there became this, this idea of what can we do to keep our men from retreating? Well, give them hope. And how do you give them hope? By giving them a hero. So the story, it revolves around this Russian sniper that became the hero and gave hope to the Russians and let them know that we can protect our homeland against the, Rus the Germans. And we kind of see that right now with the ghost of Kiev. Whether his story is true or not, I don't know, but his story is instilling hope. And that hope very well could be the result of prayer. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past God to answer our prayers in ways that we are not comfortable with. And a part of that not being comfortable is praying for one side to win a war. It's very dangerous when Christians get involved in choosing sides of wars and praying for wars. Wars are disastrous. Right now, as I'm doing this podcast, there are women and children hiding in homes in subways, uh, worried about whether they're going to live to see the next hour. This is something that should move the hearts of all Christians. We ask for you to please continue to pray for the situation in the Ukraine. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Poland that are helping with this refugee situation that is right now unfolding before our eyes. 
We want to help in every way that we can. You can help as well. You can go online to backtojerusalem.com. There in the upper right-hand corner of backtojerusalem.com is a donate button. If you click on that, you can navigate from there to get to our humanitarian aid, the area where we take donations for humanitarian aid. 100% of everything that we receive in the next two weeks into that um, category. Back to Jerusalem humanitarian aid, disaster relief effort. It's 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 under humanitarian aid and disaster relief. If you click on that disaster relief humanitarian aid, you will find that you can donate how much ever you want to. 100% of everything that is given to that category will go for this refugee crisis. I want to thank you so much for joining us again. I'm Eugene Bach coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Europe. God bless you.